What if I told you growth happens after the collapse? What if I told you separately we are weak, but together we change the world? This is a personal development social experiment designed to grow the participants, the producer, and the audience equally. This is 30 for 30. Welcome back to the 30 for 30 podcast series by Coach Nash. I'm joined by a very special guest today, Damon West. He is the author of The Change Agent and The Coffee Bean, which a lot of you may know about. Uh, Damon, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Coach Nash, man. Appreciate you having me on today. I've been looking forward to this all afternoon, man. Let's fire this up and get to talking. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Man, I know uh, for me, The Change Agent, I, I, I went through it, I listened to it on tape, and I listened to it in three days. And it, it literally, I was, there were times I was in the, up in the middle of the night, eyes wide open by some of the vividness of what you described there. Uh, can you just tell me the life that you live in the change agent and, and how it's helped you become who you are right now? Yeah, man. And first of all, hey, man, thanks for getting the book and reading. I, I tell people that want to do podcasts with me, it's going to be a much better interview if you get the book and read it, because then you'll have some some places that you want to go with this, with this, with this interview, right? So, mm-hmm. but... But where I was in life, and look, I grew up in a town called Port Arthur, Texas. And Port Arthur is down in Southeast Texas, predominantly African-American town when I grew up. And it was a refinery town, blue-collar town. But I love my town because my town was a giant melting pot of a city. And, and, and my story, the way it plays out, I owe so much to my upbringing in Port Arthur and my parents. Man, my parents, uh, my dad, Bob West, was a sports writer for almost 50 years here in Texas. He was the first sports writer in this part of Texas to put black athletes on the front page of a sports page. And that was 1971, the first time he did it in Port Arthur, man. And the, the, the running back that he put on the front page of the football section was a guy named Joe Washington, Joe Washington Jr. And so Joe Washington, he went on to play pro ball. But you would have thought my dad did some kind of capital offense because, I mean, now, you know, people are breaking, his, you know, the windows of the house or cutting his tires. You know, the, he's got a box of hate mail at home to prove what the decision was like. And my parents – you know, they wanted us to understand, and my brothers, my two brothers and I, to understand what taking a stand was like and doing the right thing. And so we did. We grew up with very socially conscious parents. Uh, like I said, growing up in Port Arthur, you're around, it's a giant melting pot of a city. And uh, I had a lot, of, a lot of talents, man, especially in sports go. But I got into substance abuse at a really young age, man. I got into drinking when I was 10. I started smoking cigarettes, a lot of adult behaviors, smoking pot when I was 12. But Marvin, I could throw a football, man. I could chunk a football. And God blessed me with a lightning bolt for right arm. And, you know, and back, in, back in the day, man, I mean, I was a three-year starter for my, vars- my 5A varsity team. And, and um, I got a lot of breaks cut to me in life. And, and not, you know, not that these guys, these coaches were just, like, looking to give me breaks, but I would go out looking for them myself. And I was a very manipulative. Uh, I had a lot of character issues. But uh, I got a football scholarship to play ball at the University of North Texas, played quarterback there. Got hurt in 1996. I was 20 years old, starting quarterback. We take the field against Texas A&M on September 21st, 96. And by the third play of the game, I'm down, man. I'm out. Uh, my shoulder just separated. I never played college football again. Uh, and that's what I call a giant fork in the road in life. And life is going to be about these fork in the road days. You got a choice 
to make. You know, you're gonna make the right choice, go the right way, the wrong choice, go the wrong direction. And I went off on the wrong course, man. I got into hardcore drugs at that point. And, you know, I, I graduated college. I went to work in Congress in Washington, D.C. I worked for a guy running for President of the United States in 2004. Uh, when he dropped out of the race, I went back to Dallas to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. It was, it was at that job as a broker that I was introduced to meth for the first time. And meth was a whole different drug experience, <clears throat> Coach Nash, because meth is the most evil, most destructive, most addictive drug I've ever done. And uh, I gave everything away for that drug and became a serial burglar. <clears throat> started breaking into people's cars first, their storage units, and then their homes. And these burglaries went on for three years. They called them the Uptown Burglaries. And it's because of the Uptown neighborhood of Dallas. It's a very high profile case. And at the end of that, on July 30th, 2008, after uh, three years of committing property crimes against people of Dallas, a Dallas SWAT team came in and took me away, extracted me from this apartment that I was living in in Dallas. And uh, my incarceration began. And I had no, no clue how long my incarceration would last, but I went to trial a year later, and that jury came back in 10 minutes with my verdict. After six days of testimony, man, six days of testimony and 10 minutes of, of deliberation, man, it's not a good sign if you're sitting at the defense table. I don't know how much law and order you watch, but if the jury's gone for 10 minutes, they smoked you. And that jury that day was gone for 10 minutes on May 18, 2009. They sentenced me to life in prison, 65 years. 65 years is a life sentence. Uh, and it took my breath away, Marvin. That was, uh, that was what I call my rock bottom moment. The first chapter of the change age is called rock bottom, and that was it, man. And uh, that set me on a course going to prison that would change my life and, and, and impact the lives of the people around me. I, you know, I hurt a lot of people to get to prison. The people I hurt the most were my family. Uh, families go through it the, the most when it deals with substance abuse and crime. Uh, because the family's going to love you, most likely, through some of that, or maybe all of it, if you're lucky like me. Uh, but I put my family through hell, Marvin. But the change agent takes me on from, you know, all the stuff growing up. It takes me into to the criminal justice system. Uh, you know, I went into from Dallas County Jail to prison with a promise that my, my mom and that my dad made me make to them. And my mom said, hey, look, you know, you owe us a, a debt, you know, debt, debt's demand to be paid. You owe a debt to society, that's your prison sentence, but you owe us a debt too. And she said, you will not get one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type gangs because you're scared because you're the minority in there. She said, it's not gonna work. So she said, you come back as the man we raised or don't you come back at all. And um, you know, that was a tough one right there, Marvin. I, I agreed to that debt, but I didn't even know how to repay that debt. And the change agents about how I paid that debt. I really appreciate that because it so, so many things were captivating in that book. Uh, one thing that you alluded to just now that, again, it, it reiterates the state of our nation right now more than anything uh, is the racial divide that we have going on. And uh, just kind of from my perspective, this is what it looks like. You know, uh, 2020 has been a heck of a year. We all know that. Uh, but we go to spring break, you know, my kids uh, kids and family, we all go down to my little hometown, go visit my mom. Uh, we come back getting ready to go to school, and we never go back to school. Right. And during that time period, we see uh, a man going for a jog, getting shot in the middle of the streets of Mount Arbery. Uh, we see uh, police with a no-knock warrant on the wrong home and, and kill a, a lady that's, that's sleeping on the couch, Brianna Taylor. And then the one that, that it was like, it, it almost broke me when I saw it was uh, what's happened to George Floyd. And 
just seeing the instant split of our nation with what we're seeing right in front of us, which, you know, evil is evil and wrong is wrong, no matter who does it. And, and, and you can't pick a side on that. You know what's wrong. But just seeing the arguments happening here. Uh, and then what you just said about your parents, you said, when you go in, don't don't come out something that you weren't raised to be. Don't go join right. because you're in the minority. Uh, just if you could just address a little bit about what's happening in our nation. Yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> it's ironic because, you know, I'm watching this, too, as, as a white man in America. And it's appalling, man. It's appalling that we're having this conversation. What's really annoying, though, is how many people get offended by the term Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and they'll fire back and they'll say, well, all lives matter. Well, that'd be like if your wife said, uh, hey, I love you. And you said, well, I love everybody, you know. So, I mean, it's not, you know, that wouldn't play in your own home, man. So why do you think that's going to play now? But the thing about it is, is America has an inherent racial problem. And, and it's gotten worse uh, in the last four years. It's gotten terrible. It, it, it's come to the surface more is what I'll say. I, I read a quote the other day by Will Smith that said, racism hasn't gotten worse, it's gotten filmed. You know, so that really got my attention. But, you know, here's the deal, man. My story is, is kind of unique to, to what you're talking about right now. Because here I am, man, a white guy getting ready to go into the criminal justice system. And, man, I got no clue. I grew up a white middle-class guy in America, man. I don't know anything about the criminal justice system. You know, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know that one out of every four African-American men in this country are in the system. I didn't know that six and a half percent of our population makes up almost five, almost 50 percent of the entire prison population in this country. I didn't know that. But there I am in Dallas County Jail, man. And I'm asking every guy that, that's been to prison before, how am I going to survive this? How am I going to keep that promise to my parents? And, man, every guy I talk to, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, they're telling me the same thing. Fool, you got to get into a gang, man. You can't survive without a gang, man. And they're telling me the same thing. Prison's all about race, man. Race is the deciding factor inside that place. And, man, you're going to the worst part of the prison system where everybody on the building you live on has life, the life sentence building. Get to a gang, West. You got to get to a gang. You won't survive. But the only guy, the only guy that will break it down for me and give me the tool, give me the lesson that would get me through that, man, was a black man in there, a Muslim guy. I call him Mr. Jackson for the sake of the story. And it, since we're talking about race, let's talk about the fact that why I call him Mr. Jackson. You know, this guy went by the name Muhammad. It's the only, the only name I knew him by was Muhammad. I don't have his first name, his last name, his birthday. I can't even find this dude. But when I'm getting ready to go out and share my story with the rest of the country, when I got out of prison four and a half years ago, I thought to myself, what name will I give this guy? Because I'm not going to go around America and say, well, Muhammad told me this and Muhammad told me that, because I'm afraid it will kill the message. Now, that's what it is, man. That's what time it is in America right now. So that's how he gets the name Mr. Jackson. So Mr. Jackson, as I tell the story in the book, and I tell the story all over the country, Mr. Jackson comes up to me and he says, you know, you know, Mr. Jackson, first of all, you got to know he's probably in his 60s. I didn't get his real age. He's got gray and hair, and, but he's a real intelligent guy. He's what you would call a career criminal, too. Jackson's been to prison all his life, man, four or five times in the joint, but he's a real positive guy, always smiling. So he pulls me aside one day, and he said, West, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads and these dummies. Tell about you how to get into a gang. He said, do not listen to these fools. He said, but let me tell you what prison's going to be like. And he told me the first thing you need to understand about prison is prison's all about race. He said, race runs. The entire institution, he says, it's the most disgusting environment you'll ever see. He said, and because it's about race, when you walk through those doors, those white gangs, they get you first. They got the first dip in you, man, and they're coming for you. He said, you're going to fight all the white gangs, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Aryan Circle, the White Knights, the Woods. You're fighting them all. He said, and if you survive all that and you don't give in to their ideology of hate out of fear, 
because he said, we do a lot of things in life out of fear. And my co-author on the coffee bean, John Gordon, John and I are really good friends. John talks about fear and faith all the time. And he said, fear and faith have more in common than just the letter F. He said, they both believe in a future that hadn't happened yet. And that's what Jax is talking about. So he said, don't give in to them out of fear. He said, but if you survive that, then you're going to fight the black gangs because they're going to send the black gangs after you because that's how it works. Everybody has to give with their own race. You're going against the status quo. He said, so you're going to fight the Crips and the Bloods, gangster disciples, Mandingo warriors. He said, you're fighting them all. He said, but if you survive all that, you will earn the right to walk alone. He said, the strongest man in prison always walks alone. You know, and he told me next, he gave me a story. He said, let me break it down for you. He said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, anything we put in that pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. And he said, I want to put three things in that pot of boiling water, a carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. And so he goes to the progression. He tells me that carrot goes into the water, prison hard, but the water in the prison changes the carrot, turns him soft. He said, uh, the egg goes in there with a shell that protects him, but inside that soft liquid core that was his heart has become hardened, like a hard-boiled egg. He said, if your heart becomes hardened, you're incapable of giving and receiving love. And he said, if you're incapable of giving and receiving love, you've become institutionalized and you will not come back as someone your parents recognize because your eggshell has swastikas tattooed all over it now. And he said, what about the coffee bean? And I didn't know, Coach Nash, I didn't know what happened to a coffee bean. So he said, if I put a coffee bean in that pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, now you have to change the name of the water to coffee. Because he said, the coffee bean, the smallest of these three things, he said, small like you, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot. He said, everybody in life puts out energy, negative or positive. And he said, whatever kind of energy you put out, you attract back. It's called the law of attraction. And so he's telling me, if you want to survive prison, not only survive prison, but, but thrive in prison, then you have to be like that coffee. And, um, you know, that was something I took with me, man, because if Mr. Jackson was telling me the truth, if he was being honest with me, then he just gave me the, the piece of knowledge that's going to not only allow me to survive in there, but thrive in that institute. Because what he's saying is the power is inside me. It's not, in, it's not in the institution of prison. It's not in the guard. Hell, it's not even in the inmate's hands. That power is inside me. And I have to give that power to someone else. And, and I think that message is so prevalent right now and so important because the entire world's in a pot of boiling water right now. This country, uh, indeed, is in, in a pot of boiling water, even before this, the racial stuff, with, just with coronavirus. But now you put that on top of it. And what we have here is we've got a situation where we have to be like that coffee. And we have to go out there and change, you know, change our environments from the inside out. The changes, the powers inside of us. And that's what I had to do in prison. And, and look, man, it wasn't easy. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You've read the change agent. You've read what I went through. I documented as well as I can. The racial thing was so hard in there. But I'll tell you this. At the end of the change agent, there's a letter in there where I, I write a letter to myself from prison because I'm getting ready to go home. My parents are going to be there to pick me up. So I drop it in the mailbox uh, a day or two before I leave prison. When I get home to my parents' house when I make parole, which I'm on parole until 2073. So I'm on parole the rest of my life. I did seven years and three months. And so I get home and I've got this letter and I read it and I put it in the change agent. And you'll see in that letter that it, it says, never forget that your own kind were the hardest to you in there. The worst, the worst people I had to deal with in there were other whites in prison because I would not get with their program of hate and that ideology hate inside that institution, man. Not only that, but I didn't validate theirs. I didn't validate their way of thinking. And that was a threat to them. And that's what happens, man. When we don't validate someone else's way of thinking, you know, it becomes a threat to them. And racism, man, there's no room for racism in this country. It's, it's America's original sin, and it's something that, that we can't run from. It's 400-year history in this country. And 
And when I go and talk to these college football programs now, Marvin, I'm, I'm telling these guys, I'll tell all the black guys, hey, man, at the end of our presentation, guys, listen, man, if you're an African-American man in this country, man, you don't have it the same as everybody else, man. And, and the, what they're hearing is a white guy saying what they already know. Because I'm not shedding any light on these dudes. But the other guys in the room, the other guys that don't look like them, they're hearing something, too, from a white guy. They're hearing something like, wow, man, I, I'd never heard a white guy say this kind of stuff before. And I tell them, you're not going to hear a lot of white. Because you can take it from my credentials of going to prison and serving a life sentence for almost 10 years in a max security prison. Or you can take it as, man, I got a master's in criminal justice when I was out of prison. And now I became a criminal justice professor at the University of Houston downtown. Hell, I teach a class called Prisons in America. So I tell these cats, man, I know about prison. Now, let me tell you something. There's more than one criminal justice system in this country. And I tell these guys, there's a white one, there's a black one, there's a brown one, there's a rich one, there's a poor one, there's one for the police. Man, there's one for all kinds of different groups of people, and it depends on what you look like. But if you're a black man in this country, you can't afford to get in this system. You can't get your fingerprints in there. You can't get your mugshot in there. You can't do goofy fraternity stuff that you see other guys doing and think it's going to be okay. Because the system, the criminal justice system you're in, is a machine with teeth, and it wants you in there, man. And when I'm done talking to these guys, I've got these guys, are, I mean, white, black, everybody in this room is locked in. I said, are y'all picking up what I'm putting down? And every head in the room is just shaking and saying, yes, sir, man. Because they're realizing that what they're seeing here in this moment is somebody that's got the, the credentials, man. I've got a currency to spend with people all over this country, man, because I've been there. You know, you can't say, well, he's just got this, this thinking for some book he read. No, man, I lived this, man. I know. I've been inside. And I know that when I walk into a prison and, and almost half the faces that look back at me are black, something's wrong in this country, man. And so that's something that we got to work to change. And I can't change it. I tell these guys in this room, I can't change the criminal justice system. I don't have that kind of power. But what I can do is make you aware of what you're dealing with, man. And if you're not aware of what you're dealing with, then you can walk and step on a landmine really easily, man. Hey, look, you're, you're a black man in America, man. You've got a son that's 14 years old. At some point, if you haven't already, you're going to have a talk with him about what it's like to be a black man in America because you have to do that. And that's sad. I hope we get to a point in this country, Marvin, that we don't have to do that. We don't have to have that talk. But I'm telling you, man, we've seen so many instances of this stuff go on before, and, and it's a big movement for a little while, and then it all calms down. But hopefully this time is different, man, because – there is no reason why people should have to feel inferior in their own country just because of the melanin, because, because of the color of their skin. It's sick. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I agree 100%. And what that leads me to is another thing that I learned from your book. You don't have to win all your fights, but you got to fight all your fights. Right. And man, this is a fight that we have to fight right now, uh, even more so. And I think you, what a lot of people in my position, I'm a coach, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I might be limited to what I can or can't say, but I don't limit myself to what I can or can't say. If I see it's right, I speak up. If I see it's wrong, I speak up. And it doesn't matter what the situation is because I, our, our kids that we're raising depend upon that and our kids that we're coaching depend upon that. What I also want to add is the, the second part now, with you being a, a criminal justice professor and teaching about all of these different systems, how much pushback do you get from some of your students in your class? Do they understand more because you've been in that situation before? Are there good arguments and debates that happen in there? You know, my classes are all minorities. I mean, it, it, I haven't, you know, I haven't had, you know, I haven't had a white student in my classes yet, but, but 
But what I'm saying is, so Hispanics and, and Blacks in, in, the, in the Houston, downtown Houston area. Um, but what it does is whether or not there's going to be, you know, there's going to be, so let's say in the college football rooms, you know, it's predominantly African-American, but it's not all. I mean, so you're going to get guys in there that may not agree with what I'm saying. They look at mm -hmm. me and say, ah, you know, I don't know about that. But they respect what I'm saying. And, and just like in the classroom, they respect it because when I tell it, I'm telling it from a position of, hey, I've been there, done it. I'm not going to tell you something about somebody's book I read or, or somebody else's philosophy. I'm telling you about something that I've discovered on my own. And when I got the job at University of Houston downtown, I told them in the criminal justice department, I said, look, man, I really want to do this. I went, to, I went and got my master's so I can't teach, but you need to understand where I'm going to teach from because I'm not going to teach from the same perspective that everybody else has been teaching from. I'm an ex-con, man. I'm an ex-con that lived in a prison. I didn't go home at night like these other people that researchers and these guards. I didn't go home at night. I'm going to talk about prison from the other side of it, man. I'm going to talk about prison from a different perspective that isn't covered in any book I've ever read because I'm going to talk about how the system is rigged against certain people. And how once you're inside this system, it's so hard to get out of this system. And how this system, in some places, just replaced slavery after the Civil War, man. So I'm going into it, man. And you know what they told me? Great. We need that perspective over here at University of Houston downtown. And so they were all about it. And so that one of the, that's it, the platform I have now, I think, is one of the reasons why, well, not only just that I got, that I got locked up. I think God controls everything and, and got, I mean, I'm a big believer, right? I think God has his, his finger on this. So even when I'm going down in a SWAT team raid and God had a plan, God had a plan. And, and sometimes I'll tell you where I, <clears throat> something that stuck on, drove home with me. It's cool that you ask these questions. Cause I mean, there's stuff I'm, I'm talking about that hell nobody's ever asked me the question. When I'm getting ready to leave prison, one of my cellmates, this Muslim guy named Sabor. Sabor is a black kid from Dallas. Well, he's my age. He's a black kid. I mean, we're, you know, we're young, we're, we're in the early forties. So we're not kids, but, so anyway, Sabor comes up to me, man. He sees me leaving, and I'm getting ready to go on the transport bus, and he grabs me. He says, you know, and we used to sit up and talk at night all the time and, and chop it up at night. Real intelligent guy, Muslim guy. He says, hey, Wes, man, look. He says, I got a question for you, man. He said, uh, he says, you're going home. You're happy about it. You're excited. He said, but I just got to know something, man, see if I had you pegged right. He said, are you going to talk about what you saw in here? I said, man, Sabor, you know I will. And he looked at me, he goes, good, man. He said, sometimes they lock up the right guy. And that stuck with me, man, because I do feel like I was the right guy that got locked up because I've been blessed with the ability to, to convey the things I've saw, the things I experienced through the, the oral word and the written word. Hell, I've never written a book before. The first time I sat down to write anything was a change agent, but it came out as something people love. So that's a God-given talent. God gave me that. God's given me the ability to speak. I've never had any speaking lessons. I've never been coached and watched anybody's stuff to learn how to speak. I just get up and tell my story. But God has given me the ability to articulate what I saw, what I heard, and what I experienced inside that place and throughout my life. And I don't think there's an accident of that. I think that God uses us in so many different ways. One of the ways that God uses us is to be an example of what he's capable of doing. Because then you see this guy, the story of this junkie they lived in Dallas that was going around, was homeless at one point. Now he's breaking into houses. Then he runs a burglary crew and a jury gives him a life sentence in prison. But he transforms himself inside that prison. Hell, that's not me. That's God. And I didn't do that. I, was just, I just happened to be blessed to be the recipient of God said, hey, Damon, you're going to be the one I use for this. But it's given me the ability to, uh, Coach Nash, to call balls and strikes the way I see them. Because now I've got this credibility. And if I use it the right way, then I can come out strong on a position. Like I can come out and tell you the stuff I did today about race on this podcast 
where you're not going to get a lot of white guys that are going to come out and say that. Hell, I'm going to lose followers when this thing plays. But you know what? I'm going to say the right thing. But it also gives me the position when, when the media and people attack my best friend, one of my great – I mean, I consider Dabo Sweeney to be a best friend. And we're, we're close personal friends, Dabo. Dabo's done more for my life than any other person has. And I've been around Dabo a lot. And when people are attacking Dabo Sweeney, uh, man, it gives me the ability to come out on social media and Twitter and Instagram and put a picture up of, of Dabo and I standing next to each other and said, man, I stand with this guy. This guy is good. And if everybody would ever, if, if America would replicate the culture that he's built at Clemson, man, we'd be all good. Because his, his culture at Clemson is inclusiveness. And it's about equality. It's about love. It's about tolerance. It's about, about positivity. If we could replicate what they have going on at Clemson, we wouldn't have problems. And so when people come out and attack my buddy Dabo, man, it gives me a chance to get out, take the gloves off, and say, man, I'm with this guy. Yeah, it's another white guy. I understand the times are crazy right now. And we're, we're talking about race, but I'm with this guy too. And I can say Black Lives Matter too, you know? So I've got this currency, and I'm spending it, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Man, you just you kind of got me fired up. So I'm going to try to calm down a little bit, man. But you, you're speaking of the facts, the absolute facts there. Uh, one thing I, I want to ask, man, is how did you get the uh, – I'm, I'm just going to call it tenaciousness – to once you your your feet hit the ground, you got paroled to say I'm going to change the world because that's what you're doing. You, you you changed my world in one book, and I don't even know if you know that. But wow, man, that's that's huge, man, to hear that. That's that's humbling. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you know, you made me step up and do some things that I've doubted for myself just by reading your book. I I, I want to know what, the power of God. How did you feel that when your feet hit the ground? And you said I'm about to make a change. No, I don't know so much that I felt like I was going to, you know, change the world or if I'm really doing that. I mean, my dad told me when I got out of prison, about six months after I got out, I finally had the courage to talk to my parents and say, hey, man, are y'all okay? I know I put y'all through hell. And their thing was, their answer was this, man, we are good, but here's the deal. You want to make it right with us? You want to square up and, and settle up with us? Here's the deal. You go out there and you find one kid in this country and change his life, his or her life, you know, you save that kid from making the choices you had to, that you made in life. And that way you're going to save their family from going through what you put us through. You're going to save their victims from going through what you put your victims through. And you're going to save society from having to cover the debt. That person, like you made society pay a debt for you to keep you incarcerated. You find that one kid, Damon, go out there. And that's been kind of like my mission, man, to go out there and go in these rooms. And I know in these rooms, man, this story, the thing about my story is that there's so much in there. It feels like there's something for everybody. You know, and that's just the way God's played this story out. There's something for everybody in this story. And I'm not going to penetrate the entire room. But, man, I tell you, the impact I feel like, you know, I get when I get some feedback from some of these. And you don't get feedback from everybody all the time. But to me, I know what a bad day looks like. You ask me where I get this tenacious, this tenaciousness to go out there and do this. I know I've got a lot of perspective, man. I know what a bad day looks like. And that's another gift from God, man. I live four miles away from the prison where I did all my time right here in Beaumont, Texas. I jog by the place. In fact, when we get off this thing, I'm going jogging by it in a second, man. But that's because that place doesn't hold any power over me. That place was a, that was a growing area for me, man. That was, growth takes place outside your comfort zone. I tell people all the time, I grew more inside that prison, spiritually, mentally, and physically than I ever have anywhere else in life. But what that prison does is it tells me I know what a bad day looks like, man. As long as when I wake up in the morning, my feet don't hit the cold concrete floor of a prison cell, I'm having a good day. It doesn't matter what happened to me. Coronavirus, whatever, man. 
I'm a speaker and an author, man. The coronavirus has wiped me out for months, man. But you know what? Day two of this thing, I'm like, man, Damon, you can sit here and be like the carrot, the egg about it. And I, and I went back and forth with the carrot, the egg. I was like, no, you know what, man? I'm going to get in the game. And I went out and did 75 to 100 Zoom calls, podcast as much as I could, talking to coaches and players and, 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 uh, and teams and organizations all over the country, man, in 30 states, different countries. And I went out and shared it for free, Coach Nash, because that's living the coffee bean message. I mean, that gives me – it gives me purpose every day. When, when I got ready to make parole, the lady looking at my parole file, she said, look, she, she was saying, we don't see a lot of people come through like you, man. Not, not in state prison. You had everything going in life and you turned yourself around. She said, I got one question for you. She said, if you could be remembered for being anything in this life, she said, give it to me in just one word, go. And man, because of what I've been through, because I was a coffee man, because God was driving that car and I'm just a passenger in it, I had her answer for her, Coach Nash, and I told her, man, useful. I just want to be useful and I can be useful in this prison or I can be useful out there in that world. And they let me go, man. And when God let me go from that prison, man, it was like, Hey, it's almost like tapping me on the shoulder when I'm walking out, man. Like Damon, look back. You're going to work for me now. And as long as you're working for me, and this is God's show and not Damon's show, then you're going to be fine, brother. You're going to, I'm going to take care of you. But the minute you lose sight of that, man, the minute your feet leave the ground, get ready. Cause this is your reality, man. So to me, man, I wake up every day and I say the same prayer that I've been saying since prison. The prayer is this, God, put in front of me what you need me to do today for you and let me recognize it when I see it. It's two parts, man. Let me put it in front of me and let me see it. I don't want to miss that, man. And I'm afraid to not pick up those things that are put in front of me. Coach Nash. I'm, I'm scared to death of it, man. I'm scared to death if I lose my humility and I lose my desire and dedication to serve other people, then I am in trouble. And so that desire to serve other people and go out and share this message and, and positively impact societies and groups of people is what drives me, you know? And look, man, it was hard to figure out how to get into the college coaching scene, the college football scene. I didn't have a natural end to it. In fact, it was January 2017. And I think you know this story well, don't you? January 2017, a buddy of mine called me up and he said, hey, man, he's a press guy at KHOU. He said, I got an extra press pass for the Bear Bryant Coaching Awards show. You know, and so he said, you know, he said the eight best college football coaches in the country are going to be in this room. You want to, you want to talk to these programs? I've been out of prison 14 months, Marvin. I don't have access to these guys. So I drive the 90 miles from Houston, from Beaumont to Houston after work, man. I go to the Toyota Center and I hit the ground running, man. And all these coaches are there, man. The Penn State, USC, you know, uh, Wisconsin, all these coaches, PJ Fleck, all these guys are there. And I'm getting to meet them, man, and press the flesh with them and give them my pitch. And every one of these coaches. Most of them quietly, too, told me, no, man, no, that's okay. Don't call us, we'll call you is the best I got. Seven of the eight coaches. So I'm in the, the corner of the Toyota Center, man. I'm licking my wounds, man. And I'm telling myself, Damon, go home. That last coach is going to tell you no. You know he's going to tell you no. But then that voice kicked in. Coach Nash, that, that competitor that said, you know what? What kind of motivational speaker would you be if you just quit? Who the hell wants to listen to that guy, right? And, and man, you survived prison. There's that perspective. You survived prison. That last coach is going to have to tell you no to your face before you go anywhere, man. So I stalked that last coach out that night. I stalked and I watched and I waited for my opportunity and I pounced on Dabo Sweeney. I got Dabo up against the wall in the, in the Toyota Center, man. And I'm, I'm giving him this elevator pitch, man. He said, to this day, he said, you put 10 minutes of conversation in one minute. He said it was getting like, like getting a drink of water out of a fire hydrant, man. And at the end of that conversation, he said, you got a card on you? And I gave it to him. He took off running. He said, we'll be in touch. Man, I, 
I threw the night out of my mind because I thought, you know what? You know, I left it all on the field. I felt good about it, and I just forgot about it. Hey, you know what? I didn't make it to college football that night. Four months later, Dabo's director of football operations gets in touch with me, has me come talk to the team in August. August 1st, 2017, I get done speaking to the Clemson Tigers, defending national champions, Clemson Tigers, and now Dabo's got me up against the wall. That was the most amazing story I've ever heard. Damon, he said, man, have you been to speak to Alabama yet? I said, no, Dabo, I've been to Clemson, man. I, how am I going to get to Alabama? He said, we'll see about that. I just texted Nick Saban from the back of the room and told him about the presentation. And, man, when I landed in Houston, Texas the next morning, Coach Nash, I had a voicemail and a text message from the director of football operations at University of Alabama. This is Wussy in Tuscaloosa in three weeks you are on. And just like that, Dabo Sweeney, out of nowhere, changed my life. One year later, man, I'm at work again at that law firm where I work in Beaumont, and I get a phone call. And this time on the other end of the phone is a guy named John Gordon. Hell, I know who John Gordon is, but how does John Gordon, this huge motivational speaker and author, the energy bus guy that sold four million books, how does he know Damon West? So I asked, how do you know who I am? He said, Dabo Sweeney. He said, Dabo can't quit talking about you in that coffee bean story. He said, let's write a book, Damon. We'll call it the coffee bean. It'll be a bestseller. It'll change the world. The world needs the coffee bean message. Now, how prescient does that look right now, man? Last July, that book came out, and now the world is in a pot of boiling water, unlike anything anybody living has ever been through, but all because of Dabo Sweeney. And so there's what I'm telling you that story is to let you know that one, don't ever be afraid to do something new or to ask that question. You told me you got outside your comfort zone to do this podcast. That's great. Don't ever be afraid to do it because you never know who, where your Dabo Sweeney is going to be, man. And if you don't ever ask the question, then you, if I never went and talked to Dabo, then if I just quit and went home, well, you don't know who Damon West is. You don't even have the coffee bean book in your hand as an example to live your life by right now and to give to your kids. That's how much the impact is of being courageous and not living in fear and going up and doing things because the worst they can do is tell you no, man. So I think living my life by that philosophy that one, I'm looking for every opportunity I can to serve. And two, man, I'm fearless. If all you can, if all, if all that's going to happen is you're going to tell me no, I'm going to keep knocking on doors. And people still tell me no to this day, man. And it's just part of it. You just keep on knocking. Somebody's going to open. Amen. Amen. You know, what's so funny is that we were in that same room that same night Shot me that picture, man. That is so yeah, crazy. Crazy. And it's funny that right now I feel like you, and I feel like I'm talking to Dabo Sweeney. I feel like you've made the same impact on me that he's making on you. And, and yours was, was done through reading the change agent and reading the coffee bean and just spreading that message and, and making me see the world in a different light, man. So I can't thank you enough. God, that's so humbling, man. You know, let me pull this text message up for my buddy Dabo. We were just talking today and, uh, I was telling Dabo about, you know, how much support he has out there and, and keep being a light in the darkness, coach. Your culture there is speaking for you right now. And your guys, I mean, and we all have your back, you know. And, and he says, God never says oops. He said, it may be one reason he wanted me to meet you. It's some boiling water right now, but I'm doing all I can to make this, make this in the call. So, I mean, you know, to have you say that, to just see the trickle down of one night, man, that's, you know, you have a picture you sent me with Dabo. Now I'm talking to you about that. Now we got, we hear from Dabo right there, man. Um, it's no accident, you know, that God has us in these rooms with other people. And God's going to put people in our life that we meet along the road of life. And, and when we're younger, we call these people coaches, man. They get us from one station of life to the next, and they raise us up. And that's what Dabo does at Clemson, man. Dabo gets these guys, just like a lot of these coaches, and he wants to work on them as a man, make sure they're going to be the best husband and father and 
as servant leader they can be, man, because football is four years. All that other stuff is for life, you know? But that's what we have right now, man. And when you reached out to me, man, you were, you were courageous, you were, you were aggressive, you wanted to get this done. Man, I'm all about that because that, you're, you're the same as me, man. That's, and, I, and I can see that and I can appreciate that. Don't ever lose that, though, Coach Nash. Don't ever lose that. That's your edge, man, because not everybody is made like that. People in life generally want to be led. And this is a fact, Coach Nash. People want to be led. And in the absence of good leadership, good people will follow bad people, right? It happens. We see it in front of us all the time. You've been seeing it happen in this country. Good people will follow a bad leader in the absence of good leadership. And it's like that thirsty man in the desert, you know? The thirsty man in the desert, if he's thirsty enough and sees a mirage, he'll drink the sand. And that sand will kill him, man. And that's what happens when we follow these bad leaders, these morally inept leaders, man. It eats us away from the inside. It erodes us from the inside just like that sand, and it kills us on the inside, man. That's what we have to stop. We have to be those leaders, those positive leaders, and that's what your role is, man. you got to go out there and spread that positivity. Thank you for giving me the platform to do it today. Appreciate you, Damon. I, you, you shared so many gems with our listeners, and uh, I just encourage all of you who are within the earshot of this or watching this on YouTube, uh, go buy the change agent. I promise you it will change your life. Read the coffee bean. Share it with your family. I shared it with my 14-year-old son, my 16-year-old daughter, and now my 9-year-old son's reading it, and he understands the message, and it's changing his life. Look into it, purchase it, read those books, and understand just what your impact is. Thank you, Damon. Coach Nash, thanks a lot, man, and thank you for that endorsement. That's strong, man. When that's coming from, you know, coaches and, and, and athletes, those are my people, man. And it's all across the spectrum, man. Those are my people because that's the that's the group that impacted me the most. They gave me a shot. That's one of the reasons why when the coronavirus hit, I wanted to go out and speak to every college and high school team I could and, and coaches groups and all that. I wanted to give back to a community that's done so much for me. So uh, if you're listening to this and you think I can come out to your school and, and if I have time to do it, man, get in touch with me, man. DamonWest.org. My email is damon at damonwest.org. Um, hit me up, man. Follow me on social media, at damonwest7, Twitter and Instagram, man. Hit me up, and Don't be afraid. That's what Coach Nash, that's how you got me on your show, man. You just hit me up, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> I can't, I can't thank you enough. Uh, just the, one of the most solid people I've, I've ever talked to, and I appreciate it all, Damon. I appreciate it, brother. You too, man. Back at you, sir. Take care.